It is a great pleasure to have as my guest one of the outstanding psychiatric experts on military psychiatry, terrorism, post-traumatic stress, and many other areas, my friend and colleague, Dr. Robert Yusano. Dr. Yusano is professor in psychiatry and neurosciences in the Department of Psychiatry of the Uniformed Services University of Health Services in Bethesda, Maryland, where he had been chairman for 25 years. He is a graduate of Notre Dame University, Yale Medical School, and he has had his psychiatric residency at Wilfred Hall Medical Center in San Antonio, Texas, a place that I know well. I've spent two years of my life there. And he is also a graduate of the Washington Psychoanalytic Institute. Dr. Yosano has received many awards and honors, the most recent being the 2018 Bruno Lima Award in Disaster Psychiatry from the American Psychiatric Association. He is also published extensively in areas related to military psychiatry, PTSD, terrorism, disasters, and related subjects, as well as other areas. He's authored and edited many books and has made over 500 presentations at professional meetings and at various medical schools. Dr. Yusano has been co-investigator for many research projects, the most recent being a being primary investigator for a grant to study assessed risk and resilience in service members, and I'm sure we'll be talking to him about that. Bob, there are obviously many subjects which we can explore in this interview, but I often like to start off with the question about what made you decide to become a, a physician? Let's start with that. Well, Michael, good to talk to you again, and always a pleasure to, to have a chance to spend some time with you. Um, becoming a physician was a move from knowing I liked sciences and I liked how people think and I didn't want to be in a laboratory, that I liked the idea of spending time with people. Combine that with a bit of an interest in philosophy and uh, trying to understand how people became who they were, and that kind of launched me into medical school with the idea of actually becoming a psychiatrist. Although that wavered a bit as I thought about other areas like primary care and ophthalmology and OBGYN, I ended up, as soon as I hit the wards on psychiatry, I knew that's what I liked most, and that began a long career. Great. And what, what were the circumstances that made you choose a career as a military physician? So part, part happenstance and uh, part perhaps deeper roots. So the happenstance is uh, the Air Force was willing to pay for my medical school, and of course medical school is expensive, so that was... Uh, a primary driver of how do we make all this work. But behind that is actually that I grew up in the military. So the de Department of Defense, in particular my Army, the Army, my father was an Army officer career with a very successful career. And so it was a familiar community to me and one I was glad to join. The Air Force, of course, got a lot of jokes from my father given that he was Army, but we all survived them and had a good time. So military did run in your family? Yes, for sure. That's, that's interesting. One major area that you've studied and have been active clinically as well as doing research has involved the issue of suicide in the military. Is the frequency of suicide in the military greater than in the civilian population of similar age people? So it's an in interesting story and 
Of course, suicide rates vary by service, and the Air Force perhaps being a bit lower than the others. But the biggest story has been around the Army and somewhat with the Marines. <clears throat> that prior to the most recent war in Iraq and Afghanistan, being in the military and the Army in particular was actually protective from suicide. The rates of suicide in the Army were about half that of an age and gender matched uh, comparison group. However, beginning with the war, particularly around 2004, the rates of suicide went up and eventually surpassed that of uh, the age and gender match sample and have continued to be high in the Army in particular, also true in the Marines, but the Army has been the primary focus. And so the concern about suicide and what was related to the increased rates became a primary focus for the Department of Defense and the Army in particular. And that's led to a great deal of work, part of that work being work that we've done here at our Center for the Study of Traumatic Stress at the Uniformed Services University of the Health Sciences. And what did you find? Did you find uh, specific factors that were uh, causing this increased risk now that uh, the, I guess it was the Vietnam War or perhaps other factors? Well, it's a, so it's a complex story. Um, the rates of suicide per se have actually gone up in the United States, although not at the same rate as those we've seen in the Army. Um, a number of factors are clear, many remain unclear. But for example, um, suicide rates and suicide attempt rates, and it's important to distinguish those, went up for those who were deployed, those who were never deployed, and those who were previously deployed. Why is that important? Because even that finding says that the whole story isn't just about being deployed to war. Secondly, it's important to remember that suicide rates haven't gone up with all wars. Uh, they didn't go up during Vietnam. They didn't go up during World War II. So what is unique about this war? Then the story gets more detailed and more complicated. We've identified factors that predict increased risk of suicide, factors which increase, predict increased risk of suicide attempt, and we've examined protective factors like um, unit, unit level issues, TBI as a risk factor, uh, family violence as a risk factor, uh, and of course the, the time in service and which tour of service you were on, and many other factors. The, perhaps one of the conclusions of that, along with that it's not just deployment, is that we need to focus not only in the military, but broadly in the nation, not only on suicide, but suicide attempts. Suicide attempts are 10 to 20 times more frequent than our suicides. In the United States, there are over 800,000 suicide attempts a year. Those are more suicide attempts than there are first heart attacks. I'll repeat that one. There are more suicide attempts in a year in the United States than there are first heart attacks. So the whole problem is a national one in which trying to understand it in the military and the Army in particular hopefully will aid the military services as well as the nation. So uh, are you saying that there's not a, a profile that you could make of a person in the military who might be suicidal? So it's a lot, 
that that would be the wish, but it's a lot more complicated. So let me give you another example. Um, we know from lots of data that predicting suicide ideation in a population, say in a city, we have reasonable predictors for, military or civilian. But if we then look at suicide ideators and we ask, and this would be the question for most mental health providers, among people with suicide ideation, who is going to attempt suicide? We have very little information nationally or in our own studies. It's a very hard prediction to make. The only data which stands out strongly is that those with suicide ideators who have an anxiety disorder appear to be at greater risk of making a suicide attempt. But that's only one predictor. We don't have a good profile. There's a whole... That, that would be a predictor in, in civilian population too. I'm correct, sure. correct. But the challenge has been predicting suicide among those with suicide ideation. And that's a military question, a national question, and actually a global question. It has become the focus of a great deal of research. The STARS well, study and others include developing databases on neurobiology and possible gene studies um, to understand these issues. We think that much data would say that suicide ideation, suicide attempt, and completed suicide are in many ways different diseases. And they have different predictors and probably different underlying neurobiology. It's a complex web and an important one to disentangle. Well, I'm sure it's complicated, but let me just try a couple of areas to see if there's any data on it. How about uh, enlisted versus offices, men versus women? Anything there? Sure. So um, enlisted soldiers have higher rates than officers, substantially higher. And men, of course, have higher rates of completion than women, but women have higher number of suicide attempts than men. Oh, that's probably true in the civilian Yes, population. that mirrors the civilian world as well. What about the actual military experience, such as combat um, versus not being in combat. Right, so that's a little tough for us to grab, but we can look at issues like being deployed. And when soldiers were deployed, the rate of completed suicide went up, but the rate of suicide attempts went down. And the increase while deployed was actually modest, not dramatic. That increased rate, though, stayed increased after they came back from deployment. For suicide attempts, the highest rates were actually among those never deployed, and the next highest rates were among people after they had deployed. And during deployment, suicide attempts went down. So the, the trajectory and the timeline is, is somewhat different and important to think about. Any possible explanation why it occurs after service? Well, that's not good question. Not after service, but after deployment. So after deployment, the return and reintegration, and we see that, say, in suicide attempts, the rates remain high for about a year and then begin to come down, is a complicated process, a reunion with one's family, taking back on the usual tasks of life, which can include, I have to take out the trash rather than defend the nation, which can have many feelings attached to it. Uh, and there's the 
reintegration into the usual tasks of work so that the question of recovery from deployment is complicated. You also allude to another issue, what about after discharge? An important area for future study, many indicators presently suggest both in U.S. data and in data from other uh, NATO and uh, allied countries that after discharge from the service, rates of suicide may actually be, be higher, at least during the first few years after discharge from service. And that may relate to the questions of needing to adapt to the new challenges of civilian life and the challenges of finding jobs and settling families. But that is an active area for study in order to develop interventions. All of these studies are very action-oriented. They are meant not to generate only science, but to, in fact, identify areas for intervention. Right. I should describe, if we have time, Michael, a yeah. particular approach, <clears throat> because it's innovative and important. So yeah. one of the approaches, which is throughout medicine, but this highlights it in terms of mental health, is using machine learning and artificial intelligence. It requires large data sets, like huge, and we have that in our Army STARS study. Uh, over a billion data points, over 1.6 million soldiers covering data over six years. What one tries to do, instead of to identify the needle in the haystack, which is what suicide or suicide attempt is, but to shrink the haystack. So one tries to develop equations that identify who's at risk, not necessarily who will. Now that may seem a little strange, but it's actually what we do all the time in medicine. When physicians, us and others, make decisions on who to put on a cholesterol medication, a statin to lower one's cholesterol. What our primary care and cardiologist colleagues do is use a, an equation, which a few variables in it, which identifies people that are in the highest risk group. That highest risk group is that 7.5 people out of 100 will have what's called a cardiovascular event in the next 10 years. Now that cardiovascular event can be anything from a transient ischemic attack to uh, arrhythmias, it's not necessarily death. So we treat 100 people with a statin in order to protect seven. The others, it wouldn't matter whether we'd given them a medication at all. Within our data within STARS, we have been able to show in principle that we can develop exactly similar equations, for example, for people being discharged from a psychiatric hospital. We can develop equations that will identify four out of 100 people who are discharged from the hospital that will have be dead in a year, be dead. Not just develop something over 10 years, but be dead. This is really precision medicine and the use of large data sets to develop and we need to subsequently refine and further develop these types of approaches to develop ways to intervene that we haven't had before. Then the challenge for mental health becomes, well, what's our statin that we can give to 100 people to protect four people from being dead in the next year? 
and that opens up all new avenues for wondering in psychiatry. How do we develop such interventions and treatments that can be broadly given, have very small, if any, negative side effects, and yet still be effective? The strategy is precision medicine, and it's using data sets to identify those at risk to provide decision support for clinicians who are making these decisions, who in the future would have a flag that pops up on the record and says, by the way, this person's in the high risk group. You might want to one, double check, and two, consider broad-based interventions to protect over the next year. It's how will precision medicine roll into psychiatry? This must have great implications for the VA because uh, I would imagine that, that the Veterans Administration would be the ones who were targeting uh, the veterans uh, for care, those who are at higher risk. Absolutely, and you're right on target. In fact, the VA, our colleagues uh, within the Army STARS group who work on this part of the project have also been working with the VA, and the VA has developed similar predictive algorithms, and they have gone forward and implemented the algorithms, recognizing that they will refine it over time with identifying people and having outreach to those that are identified by these predictive equations. So they are already rolling into practice in the form of being further developed. They'll be refined for better accuracy and for better knowing which treatment to give to these folks so it will be most helpful for them. I want to go back to one point you made earlier about the fact that there was a lowest suicide rate uh, or propensity even in, in World War II veterans. I'm sure the old timers would say, well, that's the greatest generation, uh, we were tougher or something like that. But uh, what, what are your conclusions and thoughts about the fact that th there wasn't this, uh, the, the rate wasn't as high uh, during World War II? Uh, was it a question of perhaps we didn't uh, measure it as well, or uh, do you think there was something different about that previous generation? Well, it's a very good question. There is a wonderful quote uh, from Menninger, uh, who I believe was Surgeon General that, during that time, who comments about thinking we had solved the problem and we understood why. And the, the explanation given at that time had to do with some old concepts, although not totally off target, about that expressing aggression outward might limit the amount of aggression inward. But if that were true, we would have seen that in every war and we don't see it. Um, so don't know. Uh, certainly data collection may reflect some of that, but we had pretty good data collection in Vietnam and we didn't see it. So different people, different time, different risk factors. Um, well, let's let's move on to a, a different but related subject. Uh, obviously, working at the leading military hospital and ultimately being a professor and chairman of psychiatry at this premier military hospital, it's no surprise that you are a leading expert on PTSD. So how effective uh, is the military in identifying and treating people with post-traumatic stress disorder? So so post-traumatic stress disorder, as you know well, Michael, from your own writings, um, 
is actually quite common and comes in multiple forms from the common cold type to the ones that develop into pneumonia and truly can carry a great deal of morbidity and potential mortality associated with comorbidities with it. Uh, the vast majority of people by the time they get elderly may well have had PTSD and the, most of them will have recovered. Um, if they were in a motor vehicle accident and after that motor vehicle accident they jumped when they heard the brakes squeak and they uh, didn't want to watch the movie on TV that was about car racing and they took a couple days off from work because they weren't feeling as well as they wanted to and if that persisted for a month they would have qualified for a diagnosis of PTSD and the vast majority of them recovered through normal recovery processes. The difficult story in PTSD has been one of identifying those with the disorder and moving them to treatment. Even in our best hospitals in the nation, uh, we don't presently usually have screening of everyone who's been in a motor vehicle accident. And yet we know about 34% of those in a serious motor vehicle accident will develop PTSD. The best data we have, which is a bit old uh, for the nation, says that once you've been diagnosed with PTSD, only about 60% of people ever get treatment. And of those that do get treatment, it's usually 12 years later. So it's a huge length of time. So it's within that context that the military has been, and this is true across services, but particularly true in Army and Marines where the rates have been higher, the issue has been identifying people and how to move them to treatment. And we have very effective treatments for PTSD. Uh, they're actually more effective in the civilian world than in our military-related PTSD, but nonetheless effective, both psychotherapeutically and medication-wise. Um, well, before, before you go to the treatment of it, what about the difference in the manifestations of PTSD in the military uh, versus the civilian setting. Let, yeah. Let's say there's a situation where the PTSD occurred after an auto accident or some other traumatic event or even a natural disaster. Mm -hmm. Would the manifestations or the treatment approach be different than the approach that you use in the military? So the, the treatments are the same, the uh, manifestations are the same. There are There is one new element that, well, two actually. One is called a subtype of PTSD called the dissociative subtype. And we don't know enough about that. We need to learn about it. Don't know if that's more common in civilian or military, but there's some marvelous research done by Ruth Lanius on identifying the uh, fMRI, the neuroimaging signature related to dissociative subtype of PTSD can't be used diagnostically yet, but is used in, in research studies. Um, so it's not being used clin clinically or commonly or in the military, they don't correct. scan, they don't scan, they, we're not at the point where we're scanning people. Mm -hmm. with this, so. No, it's a good research tool. We know which parts of the brain are changed, uh, the hippocampus, the prefrontal cortex, and the amygdala principally, as well as now others, um, but it's not yet a diagnostic tool. One other element in PTSD, which has become identified perhaps because of the war, but is not unique to the military, is what's called moral injury. Moral injury, which is just now being studied more, um, is the sense that I did something I wish I hadn't done. 
And that can be a component of many elements of trauma exposure in terms of what one did or what one didn't do. We don't yet know enough about when PTSD is accompanied by moral injury, what that may mean for treatment, whether particular treatments are better or worse. A bit? I'm not clear on what, you, what exactly you mean by moral injury. So Can you give an example? Yeah, so Brett Litz has been one of the uh, workers in this research area. So if one was involved in a firefight and one inadvertently shot a child, or if one felt that one could have saved one's buddy and wasn't able to get to them, that sense of guilt that may come in certain trauma exposures. And that has been identified as a new element for us to think about across many types of, of PTSD. As you can imagine, this could also be true with disaster workers, firefighters, policemen. Or even um, civilians where they didn't save their own child. Or exactly, exactly. And that highlights another, co- the PTSD, just to recall, that is highly comorbid with issues of depression and with substance abuse. So its treatment can be complicated as one tries to approach all of those elements of the disorder. And another is the feelings of grief, which in itself have to be addressed frequently when one's dealing with individuals with PTSD, military or civilian. I remember in the past, one of the techniques that we used to use to help people and prevent, we we thought might prevent people from developing PTSD after exposure to a traumatic event was to run groups where we would encourage people to talk about their traumatic experience. But then we realized that this could be problematic and traumatic itself. Can you tell us about this, how this thinking evolved and and where it stands on, on using this approach? So after disasters in particular, there's a great deal of work trying to understand how to help groups, groups. And one perspective on that was the concept of debriefing, bringing people together to talk about the experience. Subsequent studies have shown that that debriefing in its classic form as to how it was proposed, meaning people that may not be related to each other, people that had a huge range of possible exposures. Someone was in the back of the train that had tremendous death and injury and someone in the front of the train who didn't even know something had happened in fact was not helpful and might actually make things worse because your people are hearing horrific stories which they didn't necessarily need to hear and they aren't with each other after that time to be able to process it so in general debriefing in that form in particular is not a recommended intervention That's different than, say, what we might call operational debriefings when a group of firefighters who are in the firefight together talk about what happened so they all know what happened. Um, The present early interventions following such disaster exposures are built on what we call psychological first aid, which is a concept well-developed now over a number of years, uh, not well-researched, but includes elements of what we call ensuring the safety of the person, uh, increased connectedness so they remain with strong social supports, encouraging a sense of accomplishment, I can do it, I can get through it, um, fostering optimism and hope, all as elements of what we know are good recovery strategies. And that would be the present types of interventions to disaster communities following large-scale disasters. 
We do know, re reflecting your comment about prevention, it is true that we can, quote, prevent PTSD. Richard Bryant has done the studies with motor vehicle accident victims showing that if you choose people following significant motor vehicle accidents who have a significant amount of symptoms about three weeks after the event and you, and you give them a cognitive behavioral therapy, you will have lower rates of PTSD in that group to receive the treatment than in people that don't. The problem is that that's a very expensive intervention and we don't have enough people to give it to all the people that would be exposed to a disaster. And you're giving it to a lot of people that would have normally recover. In other words, those that you're giving it to of that group, perhaps 80% would normally recover anyway. So it's expensive and isn't practical. But in principle, one can prevent it. There might be ethical issues in the control group, too. And how do that's correct, that? yes, yeah. in that study. What, what, what about um, techniques like hypnosis and exposure therapy? So um, hypnosis was a, a World War II technique that people thought were helpful, as well as amitol interviews. Those have not been shown over time to be successful with how we classify PTSD these days. However, um, we do know that uh, psychotherapies such as prolonged exposure, PE, cognitive reprocessing therapy, and EMDR are helpful. EMDR is an interesting story because EMDR... Define it in case yeah, so EMDR is eye movement desensitization reprocessing, and the studies done on it show that, yes, people respond well to it, but what is it that's effective in EMDR really the elements that are in CBT. They aren't related to the eye movement elements in the original belief as to what was being effective in that see, treatment. They're not, they're not related. It's been shown that the eye movement itself is not the key That's factor. correct. Yes. Okay. So when if I'm asked by a trainee what should they learn, CBT or EMDR, I always say CBT. That EMDR is CBT plus something we know is not effective. It'd be like saying, if I take penicillin with sugar to treat my strep throat, will I get as good an effect as if I take penicillin? Yes, but you didn't have to have the sugar there. It wasn't necessary. It didn't add to it. We also have effective medications, of course. Yeah, I was just about to ask about that. What about yeah, the so that technology? The SSRIs in particular are effective in the treatment of PTSD. And uh, they're more effective in, in the civilian than in the military, and it's unclear why that's true. The psychotherapies appear to be equally effective in military and civilian traumas, um, but they are highly effective. Even with our best treatments, though, some do not recover, and then the treatments tend to focus on then individual symptoms, perhaps particularly targeting sleep, um, to try and deal with symptomatic improvement after people have been through both a psychotherapy and a medication-based treatment and a combination of those, usually. Where I'm located now in California, we've had fires and Many people evacuated and traumatized by that experience. And other parts of the country, there are hurricanes and sometimes mass shooting events, etc. Do you feel that there's adequate training of doctors, nurses, or emergency personnel who can recognize and treat the sequelae to these traumatic events? And 
Now, I, I think the training in disaster mental health and disaster psychiatry is is needed. Um, the uh, how to incorporate it into multiple training programs, including psychiatric and psychology and social work, as well as leadership programs for those who lead various groups and communities, is a challenge. Um, we know that there to effectively respond to a substantial large-scale disaster, one needs to think at both the individual level and the population level. For example, if one is going to screen for mental health problems following a disaster, you might actually want to screen for depression rather than PTSD. Why? Because depression is even more common and most of the people that have PTSD are also going to have depression. Or you can, screen, you can screen for both, obviously. You can, yep. Similarly, when you begin to think of population interventions, you, you would want to think of what intervention can I get to a lot of people, even though it may not be as effective. So if an intervention was effective in, I don't know, say 10% of people, but I could reach a million people, that's a lot of people. Uh, even though it wouldn't be something you might use on an individual basis where you could use a more effective treatment. I'm thinking in particular about things like sleep and treatment for sleep disorders, which there are now internet-based interventions that are very effective. They work better if you're working with someone with the intervention, but they also work when the person completes the program on their own. And we can distribute such internet interventions very broadly in populations. Uh, to get the benefit of the wide distribution where you're trying to measure what we call the impact and not only the effectiveness, where you have to consider the effectiveness of the treatment and also how many people you can get to it. I remember a while back when we were interacting on some issues that you were very keen on understanding the issue of resiliency. And I'm wondering uh, how, how far the research has come in in that area in uh, assessing risk and resiliency perhaps in service members or, or other populations. Well, it's a great great topic. I was just at a, a conference on exactly that topic um, at the National University of Singapore, which uh, their department is chaired by John Wong, and also speaking with Norman Satorius and Frank Verholst. Um, the most important part of considering resilience is to realize there's no single resilience. That the question of resilience for a person is based on what are they exposed to and where are they in their life and what is the context. So the hope that there would be one resilience pill or one resilience psychotherapy or one resilience intervention just is not accurate. So as we need to think more about resilience for whom, from what, and at what time in their life. Um, having said that, there is a lot of work at trying to identify what are resilience and preventive mechanisms that may assist in lots of populations. But you have to actually drill down and think some about what. The, I, and Michael, you may recall this one, and I still think it's very helpful. That, the most effective preventive intervention for PTSD from motor vehicle accidents is actually the seatbelt. Why? Well, the seatbelt, in fact, pre prevents people from being injured. 
If you're injured, you're four times more likely to develop PTSD. So people don't often realize the seatbelt is a psychiatric preventive intervention because it decreases rates of PTSD. So it's that kind of out of the box thinking that one needs when you begin to think about resilience, particularly at the population level. In other words, you can't look at uh, or screen people and say you have a, uh, a high resilience factor. I don't have to screen. I can triage you uh, and go to the people with a lower resiliency. Right. So we have, uh, in one study I was involved with, it was published many years ago, in which we looked at individuals who became prisoners of war in Vietnam a small number of them were people that had been screened as best one could ever screen them for Mercury astronaut candidacy. They were chosen because of their ability to withstand stress. And yet even in that group, one of them developed a psychiatric illness and the other other ones, in fact, described their family said that they had actually changed for the better after a trauma exposure. Mm -hmm. Importantly, there is the whole element of what's called post-traumatic growth that trauma changes us. It doesn't necessarily have to change for the bad. In some people, they in fact use the experience to rethink about their life, to reestablish their values, and to direct themselves again towards what they want and can succeed in in life with their families. Well, that's that's really fascinating. Uh, I know you've also been involved in another study which looked at military sexual trauma. Can you tell us a little bit about that study and the outcome and perhaps the implications of it? Right, so that, that study actually was is back to that description I gave of concentration of risk. <clears throat> and it was working within the Army STARS data. And we're able to show, again, in principle, because one would need to refine this and do it again and again and again, but we can identify individuals that will be victims of military sexual trauma. Now there are interventions to train and educate those that are likely to be sexual victims as to how better to protect themselves. So we can similarly think about should we be working in schools, in churches, in populations, in health settings, to identify those who at risk of being victimized and better educate them how to avoid those situations, how to not be bullied, how to be able to speak for oneself and operate independently, even when feeling feeling pressured by someone. It's a, kind of the reverse of the way you may think of things, but it's important to think of that into the equation as well. How do we train people better to avoid trauma events that they may be particularly vulnerable to? I imagine it must be a very delicate issue to uh, identify, let's say, service people who who might be more uh, uh, susceptible to sexual trauma or any trauma and, and tell them that they need to have uh, some help or some awareness of this issue, even though that might be a good idea. I'm sure it's a very delicate one. Yes, yeah, so the... Uh, how one would implement such a program would require significant thinking, as you're suggesting, and that's true regardless of the setting. Um, But we have such programs across different areas of medicine 
where we try to intervene even before a problem has come up. Um, you know, they're, they're frequently very challenging. Everything from you have a gene for breast cancer and at high risk to the question of uh, you're going to develop diabetes, you need to change your diet if, and try to protect yourself that way. Such primary prevention strategies are always challenging. Challenging both to encourage the person and to protect them as well as to protect their rights and liberties to speak for what they would like with their life. Well, from what I know about you, you've never shied away from challenging problems. So <laughs> where, what are the projects and the areas of interest that you're thinking about becoming involved in the, in the near future? Well, we have uh, a great deal more work to do on the Army STARS project and with my really stupendous collaborators, Ron Kessler and Murray Steen, both on the questions of uh, predictive algorithms and which treatments for those identified, and on the question of neurobiologic and understanding genetic risk. We also have been doing a substantial amount of work on trying to understand how do PTSD symptoms change throughout the day, not just once a week or once a month, and does how they change during the day or during the week help us identify other targets for treatment, and how might those be related to questions of sleep in particular, and perhaps sleep being an intervention. And lastly, we have a whole program on the question of children and families, uh, focused on particularly on questions of grief these days and working on helping the American Psychiatric Association, Dr. Steve Koza heads that group, on the strategies of trying to understand grief as a potential diagnosis within the uh, psychiatric nomenclature, which has not yet been firmly decided. It's nice to have a wonderful group of people to work with. Well, and it sounds like, as usual, you're going to be very busy and very productive. I really want to thank you so much for joining me on this podcast. I think it's it's been very enlightening, and I, I, I think it'll be found uh, quite useful to some of the listeners of it. So again, thank you so much, Bob, and it's been so great talking with you again. Thank you, Michael. It's a pleasure.